If you like weird history, true crime, haunted and paranormal, then pause the podcast you're listening to right now and subscribe to Ghost Town wherever you listen to podcasts. We also have a video component to our favorite Ghost Town episodes at youtube.com slash Jason Horton. Episodes like The Los Feliz Murder House, The Toxic Lady, The Black Dahlia, Janis Joplin's Hotel Room, The Haunted Roosevelt Hotel, and more. Just go to youtube.com slash Jason Horton. That's youtube.com slash J-A-S-O-N-H-O-R-T-O-N. And while you're there, please subscribe so you don't miss any new episodes. Thank you. It's the Friends Without Benefits podcast. My name is Jason Horton. Welcome to the show. Today, my guest is Freddie Alva. Freddie has a new documentary called The New Breed Documentary based on the New Breed compilation. And uh, he has a documentary based on that and reconnecting with the bands. And always excited to talk to people from the hardcore scene, whether it's uh, from back in the day or now. I'm just looking to do more of that. And I want to thank... Uh, my friend Carlos Ramirez from No Echo, noecho.net, for connecting me with Freddie. And uh, this interview is going to be a little bit different. Uh, Freddie and I were going to connect. He's in New York, but we were going to connect when he was out here in L.A. promoting the documentary, but I was in Florida at the time, I think. So I still wanted to do this, and I don't want to be limited to who I could talk to based on location. I also do not like talking on the phone if I don't have to. So what I did is I sent uh, Freddie some questions and then he answered them. So this is going to be not, it'll be conversational in a way, but it's more of a, I guess, a QA. and a but the information is great. Freddie is super knowledgeable on a lot of things. He is uh, a graffiti artist. Uh, He has a book out called Urban Styles, Graffiti in New York Hardcore. You can get on Amazon. He also is uh, involved in Eastern medicine, uh, acupuncture, and uh, we get into that too because I'm always curious. Like I always, I, I mean, I've I've had plenty of acupressure, acupuncture. Uh, you know, I've gone to herbalist. Um, I've always had issues with uh, migraines over the years, so that was something that I always kind of tried to. I don't want to say attack on different fronts. It's probably the wrong word to use. I Maybe mean, that's why I have migraines. Um, So we get into a little of that as well. Friends Without Benefits has been on Apple Podcasts New and Noteworthy in the comedy section for a while now. Uh, It's just there and it's in really good company with a lot of other great podcasts. And it seems like they shift around and add new ones, but I'm still there for some reason. I don't know what it means, what the significance is, but uh, I'm not complaining by any means. Pretty cool. Uh, I guess as... As of right this second, it is still there, and it's been there for a few weeks. Um, also, uh, I mentioned I have another podcast. I don't want to, I don't want to inundate you with too many podcasts, but they're all, <laughs> they all have my voice. You you won't be able to tell the difference, I guess, aside from the content. Uh, and I have a co-host, Rebecca, uh, but it's the Ghost Town podcast, or just called Ghost Town, but it's a podcast. And uh, we got a nice review in the AV Club, which they gave uh, an episode of Friends Without Benefits uh, a nice review as well. Uh, and this one, uh, they gave a nice review to our Comedy Store episode. We uh, we just, I think we have five episodes up. I believe we have five episodes up. And it's going really well. People seem to really like it. Uh, you can check out Ghost Town, uh, at Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get 
your podcast and you can uh, check out the social because there's a uh, there's a video uh, there's a video there's going to be a, I'm going to get to that there is a visual component to it because you know the things we're illustrating uh, in these episodes of Ghost Town but there's also uh, just sharing interesting things that are abandoned haunted mysterious. And we're forming a, a nice community if you're if you're into that kind of stuff. And even if you don't think you are, you might be. Uh, we have a lot of really good episodes coming out, so you can check out uh, the Ghost Town social media. Uh, I, I sound like such a square when I said, said that. Just I know it. I sound like a narc of of the internet. But uh, the Ghost Town socials. Uh, it's all Ghost Town Pod, Facebook, Instagram. And Twitter, and we have a Patreon for that because um, we want to do some traveling with that. And if you want to support, it's Patreon.com/slash Ghost Town Pod. On that show, we talk about things that are a little bit scary. But I'll tell you what's not scary: RX Bar. I'm still eating RX Bar. I'm still I, I I've been eating RX Bar. You've heard me mention before, and I'm still eating RX Bars because they're good. But beyond me just liking them and the fact that I think they're good is that RX Bar wants to build things the right way. They believe in the power of transparency and lets the core ingredients do all the talking with all of them listed on the front of the packaging. You know how some will hide it in very small lettering in the back? No, they put it right there up front. It should make you confident. They're the ones that have egg whites for protein, dates to bind, nuts for texture, and other delicious ingredients like unsweetened chocolate, real fruit, and spices like sea salt or cinnamon. Turns out real food ingredients actually taste really good. Whether you like sweet or savory, chocolate or fruit flavors, I kind of go back and forth. I mix it up, but sometimes I'm, you know, on the sweet and savory side, I'm on the chocolate side, the fruit flavors. But there is an RX bar for you. There's 14 delicious flavor varieties. Some of them are mango, pineapple, chocolate, hazelnut, peanut butter, and berries. And more, you'll never get sick of them. That's what's good about it. Like, you will not, there's not like, there's enough that you can keep mixing it up. And by the time you come back to another one, you're ready for it. They're gluten-free, soy-free, dairy-free, all the good frees. All the things that you want that are free, uh, it's in there. There's no artificial colors, artificial flavors, preservatives, or fillers. It's great for breakfast on the go, snack at the office to push you through your 3 p.m. slump, throw it in your bag for the plane, toss in your backpack for a bike ride or hike, Pre- and or post-workout snack. I sometimes do both. Egg white protein stands out as a source of protein that is easy for your body to absorb. Good quality protein is very important. There's so many inferior quality proteins out there in a lot of other bars. So that's super important to me. Uh, I've been really into the peanut butter chocolate Lately, because uh, it gives me that chocolate fix, and I don't feel guilty, and isn't that the most important thing? But you can get 25% off your first order. Visit rxbar.com slash benefits and enter promo code benefits at checkout. That's rxbar.com slash benefits and enter promo code benefits at checkout. All right, let's get into my, what did we say it was? Q&A with Freddie Alva. The first thing I asked Freddie was uh, how the New Breed documentary came about and how long it took to make. The New Breed documentary came about from hanging out with my friend John Woods in 2014. That was the 25th anniversary of the New Breed comp. And we were talking about getting together some of the people that were on the comp tape and getting their feedback on those times and where they are now, film them and put up like 
short five-seven minute clips on YouTube. By coincidence, uh, Gingy Brown from Absolution happened to be in town. He lives out of state now, but uh, he was around um, that week. We we decided to uh, do these interviews, so I got in touch with him, and he agreed to meet us. And we did a, a really um, great interview. He's a really articulate person, awesome stories and commentary on those times. And that, that five, seven-minute uh, thing we we're thinking of doing turned to a, like a 40-minute interview. And we re- realized there was a really good material here to make a, something bigger, like a full-length documentary. John had a experience doing uh, film. He works in the film industry, was in the process of doing a graffiti documentary at the time. So he knew how to put the pieces together. So we quickly drew up a list of um, about eh, 20 people that we wanted to interview, people that played in bands on the compilation tape, people that did fanzines around that time, and also uh, people that did record labels that put out those bands from those times. And we just started interviewing people and getting um, sort of a laser focus on the specific time period, meaning the years 87 to about late 89 from the inception of the uh, compilation tape till when it came out. And that period happened to coincide with a specific time and place and sort of a changing of the guard in New York hardcore. So with the benefit of hindsight, we can definitely um, see how things evolve and how the new breed played a role in that development. I would say it took about a year and a half for the uh, documentary to come together. John became the uh, director of the documentary. I was a producer. And we drew up a basic 10 questions for all the people we interviewed and then do some freestyle of the answers. And the interview process became relatively easy. We had a facility for people to come to be interviewed and they couldn't come to us. We had the ability to take equipment to them to interview them. So that came off uh, really well. The biggest um, hurdle was finding the a right editor for this. We went through two editors who, um, for whatever reason, couldn't really um, grasp uh, what we were trying to do and put everything together to flow seamlessly. So that was, uh, it took us about a good eight months, eight to ten months to find someone that would edit the whole thing till we uh, found uh, Orlando Arce, who was just incredible as far as totally getting what we were trying to do and putting all these different... um, By that time, we had about a good 24, 28 hours of uh, recorded interviews, and we wanted to do uh, like a 60-minute documentary. So to edit all that, plus all the footage that uh, John Woods had from his own personal collection as far as uh, hardcore shows and flyers and... um, mementos from those times to put all that together it just takes um, a lot of um, burning the midnight candle and just making sense of the whole thing so i would say good year and a half from uh, late 2014 
till we finally finished it in uh, 2016 and we uh, screened the documentary in, in that time period. Then I asked if there was anyone uh, that he wanted to get for the documentary but couldn't for any reason. The only two people I can think of that uh, we had in mind to interview and politely decline is um, Ray Parada, the singer for Abomination, and Lou Dimmick from uh, Our Gang. They uh, both uh, felt um, uncomfortable being on camera, so we respected the decision. Would have loved to have them, but just, um, it just is what it is. Everyone else that we asked were uh, more than happy to uh, be involved. Um, most of them have really fond memories of uh, being on the comp and are proud of the, their involvement with it. And over time, the comp has grown uh, in stature. So definitely uh, a lot of people have no problem being associated with it. So pretty much everyone from our short list that we thought of that wanted to be that we wanted to be for the documentary agreed to do it. So that's came off uh, like a really, really great, great thing. Then I wanted to know if uh, he learned or rediscovered anything revisiting uh, that period in hardcore since it was the late 80s and a lot of time has passed and uh, kind of if anything came to light or came to the surface from uh, kind of revisiting all of that. Like I said before, the uh, benefit of hindsight is, um, is a really uh, useful thing. So we can look back on those times now and, and we can see how the um, sort of uh, the tape coincided with a change of uh, the scene circa um, 87, 89. And that's exactly when the, um, the bands involved with the compilation were around. And those years happened to coincide with um, my own involvement with the scene. So I always looked at the compilation tape as sort of my um, hardcore uh, high school yearbook. Um, a lot of my friends that I knew that getting into the scene circa 85, 86, by um, 89, late 89, a lot of them were dropping out of hardcore um, moving on to uh, jobs, family, the military. So that sort of reflected the changing of the guard aspect that out of 20 of the bands that were um, on the comp in 1888, by late 89, uh, in the beginning of 1990, a good two-thirds of them had uh, broken up and just disappeared. Um, which is a shame because a lot of them had incredible potential to do uh, amazing recordings. But what I learned from um, looking at those um, ebb and flow of history, uh, things didn't really uh, die out um, by that time period. By the time uh, 1990 came around, there was sort of um, uh, a new chapter of uh, bands sprung up in the New York hardcore scene. And a lot of them, the newer bands, happened to have members that played in bands on the, on my, on the Newbury comp. For example, um, members of Life's Blood and uh, True Colors, our gang from the comp, they started a band called Born Against, who were extremely influential in, in the 1990s. Um, also, um, people that played in Collapse on the Newbury comp started uh, Quicksand, 
were also hugely influential in the post-hardcore 1990s scene. So we can see sort of like the um, the seeds and the rebirth of uh, different aspects of uh, the subculture as the scene transitioned into the 90s and beyond. That era of hardcore was instrumental in keeping the um, torch alive during the 90s as the advent of um, stuff like alternative music, grunge, metalcore, pop punk, and what have you. I think uh, people looked towards that specific uh, sound from that time and place to um, keep uh, a, a very strong identity of what New York hardcore is. And these days, that NYHC has become a genre of its own. And I think it, it owes to the pioneers from uh, the 82 A7 scene, the uh, second wave in uh, 85, 86, and what I always consider um, the bands on the comp, the uh, 2.5 wave of New York hardcore that just brought all these elements together that made the um, the spirit and the flame to be kept alive. And I asked if there was anything that uh, he didn't expect or wasn't prepared for when putting together the documentary. I think the um, editing process was the biggest um, learning lesson I could take from this whole experience. Um, you can have the most incredible uh, footage and uh, the best of ideas, but to edit the whole thing into um, something that doesn't drag on for you know hours and hours, uh, which we could have, because we have so much good stuff, and it's just painful to... Um, cut cut out what to leave out what to put in that just takes hours of uh you know pulling hair out of your, <laughs> out of your head trying to decide what's best to make the story um flow better and also to keep it um nice uh at a nice length sort of like a like a like a hardcore song so short direct to the point but still with um meaningful and with uh, context that resonates with people. And the whole process taught me a lesson um, when I was later on, uh, a couple of years later, after the documentary, I was uh, writing a book that coincidentally was inspired by a section on the uh, documentary, mainly the uh, graffiti influence in New York hardcore bands. And I turned that into um, into a book. So... Um, which um, also a lot of people from the documentary were graffiti writers, and they're also interviewed in my book, which is called Urban Styles. So the editing process of doing a documentary taught me how to do uh, the same um, techniques for editing uh, when I was doing the book. So I think it was a great um, learning curve and knowing when to... um, step back and let the story flow and also step in to cut it pieces that don't fit as well. So that was a great um, enriching experience. I switch gears a little bit here because uh, I'm just, uh, you know, selfishly curious about 
Chinese medicine and acupuncture. And uh, so I, uh, I asked Freddie, who is a practitioner, uh, if there's any misconceptions when it comes to uh, Chinese medicine or alternative medicine. I think the, the biggest misconception regarding Chinese medicine is um, expectations um, as far as the um, outcome or lack of. And they can range from uh, one extreme being um, expecting Chinese medicine to be an incredible um, balm cure for everything under the sun, which um, unfortunately is not true. Or the opposite, polar opposite of um, looking at Chinese medicine as a, a quack, like inconvenient science that doesn't work, and when it does work, it's just a placebo effect, which is also uh, not true. Um, I find Chinese medicine, like any other medicine, would work best at different uh, circumstances and will also work best in conjunction with other modalities. Uh, I specialize in a lot of uh, pain relief, uh, stress reduction, and I find it working I do an acupuncture and Chinese medicine alongside uh, modalities such as chiropractor or physical therapy, um, somatic therapies to work uh, the best as far as um, chances of uh, the outcome. So there are um, a lot of misconceptions as uh, Chinese medicine moves into the mainstream, but uh, I see parallels and uh, the chiropractors when about maybe uh, 60, 80 years ago, when they were on the outside of, um, on the outskirts of uh, medicine regarded as uh, just uh, weird uh, quacks. And now, you know, chiropractors are totally embedded in the system, in the medical system. And I find acupuncture slowly progressing towards that goal. It's not there yet, but um, I'm going to, has made a huge leaps and bounds in the past 20 years. So I would give it another like um, another decade so to people um, can just won't think twice about um, getting a massage and getting a, a chiropractor adjustment, getting a physical therapy, and also incorporating acupuncture into the routine to uh, heal uh, whatever chronic or acute ailment they might have. And then I just asked Freddie if there's anything that he wanted to add because, you know, this is not a, uh, a standard conversation. So I, I want to make sure I wasn't missing anything and he got to say everything that he wanted to say. And uh, also make sure to check him out on Twitter, FreddieAlva underscore NYC. I want to thank you for your uh, interest in um, doing this uh, interview about um, what's essentially sort of a weird, odd, uh, odd man out kind of thing, a uh, whole documentary based on a very anachronistic um, item like a cassette. Also a compilation of um, something that's, you know, in the digital age has, you know, gone the way of the buffalo. So thank you for your uh, interest and also everyone who has been interested in, in watching the documentary. And I've always, through the years, I've, over, I've heard um, people describe the New Breed tape compilation as the best tape compilation ever. And I'm you know, very flattered to hear that, but um, I have to say um, that's simply not true. <laughs> Nothing uh, comes out of a vacuum. 
there were tons of literally thousands of uh, tape compilations in the 80s that um, came out. Uh, the most uh, notable ones that inspired me to do the our tape compilation um, were uh, tapes like the um, guillotine compilation from 1985 put out by Wendy Eager. Just a, one of the first uh, tape comps that I bought uh, when I was getting into hardcore. And with limited resources, um, the option of paying um, $4 for a 7-inch or $7 for an LP as opposed to $3 for a 90-minute cassette comp was just, you know, obvious. So uh, tape comps has always uh, fascinated me. Um, there are some incredible ones out there from the ones I can name uh, off the top of my head, like No Core from 82, the uh, Char Remains compilation from 84, the World Class Punk from 84. Um, there are literally hundreds of them, and a lot of them up on YouTube. You can search for them. Uh, a lot of them up on blogs. You can download. Uh, I actually did a, a article on um, tape compilations called uh, in, uh, in Praise of Hardcore Tape Compilations that you can look up. And uh, there's a great uh, Facebook page uh, called 1980s uh, Hardcore Tape Compilations. So um, there's so much out there. Uh, the beauty of um, hardcore in the uh, 80s and 90s that it was so uh, worldwide that uh, it, it rivals um, the garage uh, rock scene in the 60s where um, every um, every garage had like a, some bands jamming out and recording something. Hardcore had the same thing. There are, there are thousands of bands that uh, only did demos or rehearsals. Um, and fortunately, a lot of the uh, compilations from those time period capture that and recorded them for posterity. So I would just encourage everyone to um, go out there and search and hear all these wonderful nuggets from the past that uh, has stood the test of time. You put on a lot of these um, uh, bands from back then and they sound as relevant as anything coming out today. Maybe even more so, but uh, I'm biased in that. <laughs> I like all the uh, um, older hardcore stuff uh, the best. So uh, thank you, um, Jason, for these uh, wonderful questions and also for allowing me to talk a little bit about my uh, side job, which is um, doing acupuncture in traditional Chinese medicine. So thank you for that and be well, everyone.